things are good when you're happy, right? Yeah, sure. True. Hey, welcome. Welcome to Big Story. I'm Alex Morrissey, and today we have a wonderful guest. Hold on a second. I always forget to do the uh, be quiet button. Mm. There you go. Be quiet. Um, Heidi McDonald has joined me. Heidi, super excited to have you on. Um, I uh, felt, felt a, a a growing bond with you because of uh, your your obsession with the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's work, and I'm like, oh, I I actually am cut from the same uh, magical cloth that doesn't allows you not be seen in the woods at night too. So, oh boy, Tolkien, yeah. amateur Tolkien scholars. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, so much to talk about. Yeah, it's like I so I yeah I it was funny because I pulled out my my well tattered. It's got this green tint to it, which I don't know where that came from, um, of the Silmarillion, um, which is like really my favorite of the favorites. Um, mm. And and it was so funny because when they announced the the series on Amazon, like I think the early scuttlebutt was that was going to be the Silmarillion. Like this was this kind of like, oh, wow, what a interesting dive. And then, um, and it's not so, which is fine. I just, I'm like, oh man, I really wanted to see what they could do with that. You know. Well, I've been saying forever that, um, I mean, long before Game of Thrones came on, I said, oh, if you really want to do an HBO fantasy, they should get the rights to the Silmarillion because it would, you know, I mean, you could do it for 20 seasons, sure. literally. You know, yes. you just have to plan it out a little bit, but um, you could pretty much do a whole season of every chapter of the book. Um, and, uh, you know, it went to Amazon instead. I, I'm not sure there's been actually some maneuvering with the rights to, uh, the Tolkien estate of late. And for some reason I didn't delve into it. I guess I didn't want to be disappointed, but, right. uh, I think that a company just acquired the, the, the rights that Saul Zanes had, um, which was just the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and the appendices. So I think, you know, the family was obviously dead set against ever having any adaptations of the Silmarillion or any of the, you know, other materials from uh, Unfinished Tales or, mm -hmm. you know, Tolkien's other works. But, uh, you, you know, all the, the gatekeepers are dying off or have died off. So we'll sure. see. Um, I think... Well, it's a long way before they'll ever be in public domain. So the the heirs, the remaining heirs, might want to cash in on, on some of that. I yeah. would. I mean, come on. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, so far I feel like they're doing they're doing a great job, sort of like you know, sort of continuing the I guess the visual sensibilities of the world that Peter Jackson sort of initiated with what has become the gold standard for fantasy, you know, in, in right. modern, in modern time. And, you know, and with the pure, you know, I mean, it's so funny. It's so funny about Tolkien is that like, I think people who might be coming to it, you know, later, you know, recently, um, especially if they're reading the books or, or, or watching this, they might go like, Oh, this is so formulaic, or this is so sort of like this has been done a million times. It's like, well, it wasn't. It was never mm -hmm. done a million times. It was never done once. This is it's it. where it comes from. Yeah, and it's this it's interesting. Like kind he invented of, all this stuff. 
Yeah, like I, 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 you know, I'll have conversations like with younger friends of mine. They'd be like, I don't know, I don't get the Beatles, and I'm like, oh man, okay. So we need to have a little conversation here about like how you know time works and like you know like we. So yeah, so the Beatles and you know and J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, there you go. Um, yeah, I, it's it's cool. I really do. I mean, I think. I think you're right. I mean, someone's going to do something with the the Silmarillion. Like, it's gotta it's gotta happen. Well, I think we'll see how this goes. And um, I mean, there is like this this um, this kind of manga version of some of the stuff coming out. The history of the the uh, the Rohan, I believe. And yeah. you know, the thing is that. Uh, you know, the Tolkien family sign, I believe it's pronounced Tolkien. I always yeah. say Tolkien, but it's Tolkien. And um, the Tolkien family did sign one of the all-time worst deals back in the 60s with Saul Zanes, who was a bit of, you know, a shystery type producer. And they signed this deal that gave them the rights to the Lord of the Rings in perpetuity forever. Right. And with no reversion clause. And, you know, they didn't know. They didn't know in those times. Uh, I mean, you know, in these days, in those days, authors were just delighted that their book had been optioned, you know, yeah. and I mean, if you can imagine, I, again, I'm not sure of what the pittance of money that they offered was, but it wasn't very much. And so they did not, and the family, of course, uh, did not like the things that were done with it, which included the Rankin-Bass Hobbit yeah. and the uh, first Ralph Bakshi unfinished Lord of the Rings, that, yeah. that, you know, now that's a whole you know, a whole other thing. I drag and, my family. I drag. I'm, I'm so I'm like sort of I'm like the youngest of the of, of like sort of half the family, and they're all like eight to ten, thirteen years older than me. That there's so they're like they're not kids when I'm a kid, and um, I drag all of them, including the parents, to go see the Bakshi film when it came out. So like, oh yeah, this, this is what they had to do. They like had to. I don't know how I swindled everyone into going to see this one i remember i dragged my family to see it too but i mean of course they were gonna have to take me to see it right and i remember just being like really perplexed by it it was confusing it was it, conf was. it was it was cool like there was some really cool stuff but it felt like i felt like i was like i didn't feel immersed into the into the moment mm, yeah as, I remember that as a I, kid. I mean i i've never seen it since and Mm -hmm. So I, 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 you know, I see Ralph Bakshi on, on Facebook. He's always posting stills from it and everything. Right. And it looks beautiful. I'm like, oh, you know, it probably yeah. actually was kind of cool. Probably should have kind of given it a chance. But, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to, to revisit. I mean, I guess it's not released or able to. I mean, I don't know if I can even watch it. Probably have to do I'm some sure, kind of bootleg. I'm sure, those, I'm sure that tied up licensing agreements are probably what, what is holding the world back from this, you know, piece of history um yeah i mean i i mean like 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 you're saying like i'm sure that the estate was probably like oh wow we're gonna get paid you know for something that's already been done this is twenty thousand dollars right i mean like well i mean you wonder how much i mean i don't even know like what the broccolis paid ian fleming you know and like talk about another in perpetuity thing that has just you know stuck around so right i mean thank god there are royalties I mean, I, my understanding is that the rights to uh, Tolkien's work is held by a family trust, okay, and which is pretty smart. And he, obviously, Christopher Tolkien 
uh, who lived to be like 96, uh, was that he just passed away. I think he passed away just a few years ago. Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, of course, they they hated, you know, he detested the movies, the Peter Jackson movies, like the whole, you know, family tutted about that. Except there's one renegade, his son, Paul Simon, actually has this renegade who, uh, he's actually listed as a consultant on. Okay. Uh, this rings of power. So I guess he's the one friendly Tolkien who talks to people who, who make the stuff. And, um, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, again, as more of the old timers die off, I do think we'll eventually see the rights to the Silmarillion. Uh, it feels like it. Yeah. It just feels like it. I, 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 I don't know. But, but the question is, yeah. given what we're seeing of the rings of power, yeah, should we really look forward to that? Well, so, I mean, very little in the ways of, like, I mean, the appendices are, are they're, they're just, they're, they're not even an outline. The appendices are so loose and, and, and rich with information. Like, they're super, mm-hmm. fun. like, you know, they are really, like, for an eager, avid person who's really into the whole thing, you're like, oh, oh, and this, and this, and this. But, like, to develop narrative, it's a little off, you know? And I think that they've had to like do the whole sort of like move this here, move this here, you know, and we'll we'll kind of create a, a through line. And I think it's another one of those sort of like, you know, like record producers, like, oh, well, if we get this band that sounds a lot like this other band that's selling, people will buy this band. And I think that we're, the, the, the this feels a lot like, well, if we make it seem like the thing that everyone already else, else likes, they're gonna love it. And I'm like, I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't think that's actually proven to be an actual thing. That's a. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I was on board with the first two episodes. Okay. I thought yeah. they were pretty good uh, in, at setting up um, the main players. We'd be Galadriel, Elrond, yeah. Gil-Galad. Uh, obviously we're headed to Numenor, which is going to be the main story of this season. Um, we meet the hobbits. We meet Durin for yeah. Celebrimbor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's promising. It was very promising. And a lot of mysteries were set up. You know, now, uh, now in episode three, I have to say, are you also watching House of Dragon, House of the Dragon? Yeah. So I'm, I am, I have not watched episode three of, of the rings yet because, um, I was embroiled in a, uh, in a bocce tournament this weekend. So, uh, we haven't had the time to, to sit down and watch. Well, that's it. very all consuming. Of course. Is, yes, very much so. And, um, but today during lunch, I did catch um, the House of Dragons. So right. that 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 one, my wife has no interest in. So I'll, you know, I'm like, all right, well, I'll watch that while I'm, you know, eating food. Cat, mm-hmm. watch out, cat. Right. Yeah, yeah, chat, cat. Yeah. Um, so I will say this, um, and it will become, I feel, very clear in episode three of Rings of Power that it is written uh, on a level that is not quite up to code and you know house of dragon is is really well written and the characters are speaking in a way that is archaic and yet evocative Mm -hmm. and in rings of power there's some dialogue especially when you see episode three that is you know i think what i do my recap i'm gonna call it numenor 90210 (laughs) so uh you'll see and there's some some stuff in there that's you know, like 
the Big Bang Theory level of slapsticky, and I'm like, okay. oh, cringe. It was a bit cringe for me. But then there was other parts of it that were like super cool. I do love Galadriel. I do think uh, yeah, she's good. she she's, is she's yeah. she rocks. Yeah, she's got, that, she's got that kind of thing that I think at least for for me, I when when they introduce Ray in these in the in the recent Star Wars films, I'm like, oh, this actor has so much sort of determination in their in their portrayal of a character i'm like i'm really right. into that and I, I like that sort of characterization so i think that you know this version of galadriel is is it has that sort of like gritty i'm gonna i'm gonna do this like you know sort of decorum be damned let's go um mm, mm. yeah and i think and both listen both of these shows are off piste you know, like there's no, there is no, there is, <laughs> there's no mountain trail for these, for them to go slant, you know, sledding down or skiing down. They're going off in uncharted areas in so many ways. Well, it's a, in a lot of ways. And, uh, but you know, with House of the Dragon, you do have obviously the Game of Thrones um, example, which, which up until the last three episodes, I mean, there was some grumbling about the, the last season, but you know, people loved some of the episodes. Like there was huge excitement up until the dark battle of of uh, you know Winterfell. I think it mm -hmm. was, um, I, I think it was pretty positive, or at least wasn't as negative as it later turned. Um, but so far, they do seem to be uh, holding their own with Rings of Power. Yeah, they really are sledding down an unknown an unknown hill. I wonder, and I, I don't have the names of the showrunners uh, next to me, and I haven't memorized it, so I'll have to look it up here. But, um, you know, they didn't really, they haven't really done anything. They don't really have a track record. Yeah. Uh, and apparently Amazon opened it up at, to kind of, you know, a, a bake, what do they call it, a cook-off. And uh, these two fellas, uh, Patrick McKay... And Patrick McKay and J.D. Payne uh, were the winners. Now, it seems like they are super Tolkien nerds, which is awesome. But I'm not sure they are. They have never run a show before, let alone a $1 billion show that the hopes and dreams of Amazon are hinged on. So, well, you know, um, I think this might be kind of like The Witcher. Uh, which is another, mm. I mean, it is a, it is a, it is a bonanza for fantasy fans right now. And The Witcher is another show that started off pretty rocky yeah. just because the person who was running it had never run a show before. And I think it's season two of The Witcher. I mean, even I think by the second part of season one, it had really found its footing a lot more and mm -hmm. season two was pretty solid. So I'm hoping with Rings of Power that they kind of learn as they go a little bit, because I, I, I can definitely, with episodes three, I started to see like some storytelling cracks that were um were not worthy of a show with this imprimatur sure of that yeah yeah that's i mean it, it it does carry a bit of a you know a legacy you know as far as i mean well listen it's the biggest book book series ever and people oh it's the most beloved it's the most yeah. beloved i believe it was voted the most beloved book of the 20th century or the yeah. last 100 years or something i mean it is immensely immensely powerful yeah. and and popular and i mean you know the fact that i mean even like just if you have the five core books of the hobbit the lord of the rings and the samarayan which is um you know 2000 1500 to 2000 pages of stuff and it still has 
so much. Uh, I mean, the fact that you and I are amateur scholars. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, you know, people could speak Elvish. There are, there yeah. are literal Tolkien scholars. There are books, scholarly books, written about it all the time. There are, yeah. there are journals, you know, devoted to its language. I mean, this invented world. This one man created such a an invented world of so much depth that. It's really astounding. It's absolutely astounding. And um... yeah. I think the be one of the, the beautiful, excuse me, <clears throat> one of the beautiful parts for me is that while he put so much effort into creating the worlds, the languages, all this history, when you read the books, the books leave so much space that it, it affords you, the reader, all this area to ask questions and fill uh -huh. in fill in the colors in the blanks in the in the in the all the textures and that's a really one that's to me that's that's beautiful so when i read um more modern you know fantasy where it's highly descriptive of you know this that and the other thing and everything is down to the you know the the, the whatever buckles on the the whatchamacallits and i go uh -huh. yeah like I don't need that. Like I, I like I really want to hear. I want I want I want a little more latitude as a reader to kind of get into the get into the world on my own, uh, on my own accord. How did you? How did you, like? How did you discover the the books? Like I know I know exactly the moment in time, and it was a very strange, mm. unexpected. Well, thing. yeah, we should definitely swap stories. Um, so my uncle was the first one to have read them, and he went off to the army and left. He was drafted and went off to the army and uh left his books behind and i saw them and these were the, these were old i mean i am old so these were the original weird covers barbara um i forget her last name but um they were they were or gervasio gallardo they were very strange covers that didn't reflect the inside of the books at all yeah and um i guess my uncle peter had loved them and uh so uh i lived with my grandparents at the time and my grandfather said he would read it aloud and i hadn't read the hobbit i went straight i was only like nine years old at the time and right. i hadn't read the hobbit so he we went straight to the lord of the rings and my grandfather started reading it aloud and of course you know a chapter a night so it was a very long reading <laughs> session and i mean it was magical. Yeah. Uh, I was done. Then he kind of petered out towards the two towers. So I had to read the rest of, I read the return of the King in the book form. He didn't read it aloud. And then I, you know, I came to the appendices and I was just like, I mean, I can't even think of this moment. And of course there was a bit of Tolkien mania around this time. So there was the calendars, the Hildebrandt uh -huh. brother calendars. So of course I was really into those, you know, there was a slim shelf of, uh, Tolkien books and I immediately was really into them and um, you know I don't know I was just obsessed I, I immediately became obsessed with it and I immediately became obsessed with other fantasies you know so I immediately was into Narnia and um, right. Pridane and you know other Arthurian there was a lot of Arthurian fantasies at that time and uh, you know then came the the cheap imitations like the sort of Shannara books which of course I read Sure, same like, here. Ugh. Yeah, and I was like, like eh, not like as it's good. It's got that cool Hildebrand Brothers cover, but it's not yeah. the same. Yeah, you know. Yeah, well, it was it, it was far more like so. Yeah, for me, like so, I my father was not a reader of these this genre, but he had the the three books in a slipcase, and it, like they all looked like um, it looked like a. Uh, 
stained glass. That's what it looked like. It was like the right. art looked like stained glass. And it just sat in this in this room, like upstairs. We had this big upstairs, like sort of like a family room, which had like a porch all around it on the second floor. And it just sat on the t- table in there. For, and, and, I, and I just kept kind of like, what is that? What is that? What is that? And this has got to be like 76-ish. And uh, so I walked over, eventually slid a book out, you know, and you know, kind of look at it and, oh, well, there's, there's like kind of like, there's a map. Well, what's this, you know? And like, you just so like the map is like, that was sort of like my entry into what, what this is a different world. And, and like, and for me getting to the appendices was like the equivalent of, I guess, like, you know, the Easter egg or the additional bonus, uh, bonus content. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like there's more to this. And then the, the, I, I, it was maybe like three or four years later when the Hobbit came into the picture, because that was like an assigned reading, I think like in seven, like in seventh or eighth grade. So mm-hmm. it was one of those kind of like, oh, I, I know this world kind of thing. So, and then, so hence the, all the stuff. And yeah. And like this, it sort of dovetailed them with, Dungeons and Dragons, you know, that kind of came into play in the late seventies for me. So it was all this kind of like, kind of everything was all kind of there, you know, post star Wars, um, you know, so it all kind of like it hit at a moment, you know, the micronauts and all those kind of cool. Right. They're all the world building. I mean, really it comes down to world. building. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Was an incredible world builder, never been surpassed, obviously mm-hmm. unsurpassed world builder. And, uh, you know, it's it, it must have frustrated a bit that C.S. Lewis's buddy, you know, just came and, and kind of essentially ripped ripped him off and like just whipped out these seven books and, you know, could write so easily and so fluidly. And, you know, Tolkien never finished anything after The Lord of no. the Rings. I mean, no. that was longer than like a short story. Yeah. And he just dithered endlessly. And, you know, his son had to put together the Silmarillion. I mean, it's really just the, one of the greatest examples of procrastination and, and you know, culture, world culture history. Um, but, you know, he wasn't a writer. He actually sure. wasn't a writer. He was That's a world point. builder. That was, his, that was his thing that he did. You know, he invented languages. He came up with stories and he managed to write these, these few things down. But he never had the, the wherewithal to to write a sustained narrative after that and he started many i mean he really was one of these writers who would start things and then not finish them and some of the things that he started are just heartbreaking that he didn't go any farther with them because they're just you know he was a very good writer he was really or a really good tail spinner you know and and i guess he kind of thought himself a poet and the poems and songs that are rife throughout the books are you know they're What's the word? Not doggerel. There's another uh, world for word for kind of middle brow poetry. Okay. Yeah. Um, that I can't think of. Um, but but um, but you know, for all of that, he still the whole book is basically written like a poem. I mean, it's written in such beautiful language, yeah. and uh, every word of it. I mean, I had you know my whole thing was that after, I think I did find the map. I think finding the map was one of the, like just a pile of papers that that was probably what piqued my interest in it. And then I read the books. I I don't remember, I very vividly remember in my life, my grandfather reading them to me, but I don't remember subsequently reading the books. 
but I do know that I must have read them and several times and that I had a you know real photographic memory so we would actually play a game where somebody would read a passage from the book and I would tell them what what chapter it was I mean I I I was yeah and I was I was right I would say nine out of ten I mean I it was hard to stump me and I was always trying to get people to do it because it was you know so much fun and they just got bored doing it because I was right all the time so um, yeah, so I pretty much did memorize the books, and which is why I quote them so much on Twitter and on the beat and everywhere. It's you know I have like all these little passages that other people might not quote at all that are just buried in my memory. So, so yeah. you discover you discovered the map, and then what happened? So then I just started. I you know I wasn't a huge reader as a kid, but I kept coming back to the books and I would read from them and I just kept reading from them. And by the time it, um, the Hobbit became in a sort of assigned project for school i had to read that and i read it and i'm like oh i know this stuff thinking i knew it so i read it and then i was like oh this is great so then i was able to go back and really sit down and go through the books and Mm. they really became like super 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 just like like bedrock for me when it came to my framing of so much when it comes to story you know, yeah. the idea for me, you know, a story and like, and, and there are those bedrock things like, listen, for science fiction, Star Trek is kind of a bedrock element for me. Like there's this sort of utopian, you know, uh, team aspect to traveling in space and, you know, and doing mm-hmm. things yeah. with, with, with meaning behind it. And uh, oh, it's, it's idealistic. It's very yeah. idealistic. Absolutely. And, and so like, and, you know, but the, the sort of the, the quest aspect that, the Lord of the Rings represented, um, you know, and that that's very much like in Star Wars. You know, I mean, you have this sort of thing like where this is the, here's the quest, and you know, and, and you know, just like King Arthur, like all these things, uh, like there's a real strong sort of motivational aspect of like you have been charged to do this, now do it. You know? Well, you know, but the, the the thing that Star Wars, and you know, I'm sure George Lucas was, you know, familiar with Lord of the Rings. And I mean, he's probably somewhere talked about it a little bit. And the thing that he did with the first Star Wars movie was, uh, uh, you know, there had been science fiction movies before mm-hmm. and there had been some very good ones, but they were like 2001 A Space Odyssey. They were very cerebral and remote, whereas with Star Wars, very much like the opening of The Lord of the Rings, he did give you this idea of this richness, you know, between the sand people, the Jawas and, and, yeah. and most Isley and, you know, the smugglers and the huts. I mean, it really was this world building that gave you this richness of, of this, 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 you know, this milieu that yeah. there was so much else going on. There was so much else. And, you know, Star Trek had the same thing. I mean, with, you know, the Andorans, the Vulcans and the this mm-hmm. and the that and the Romulans and the, you know, Ponfar. <laughs> and, you know, I think, they didn't do it quite as, as I think it was a lot more slapdash when they did it with Star Trek. And then obviously when they sure. came back with it, they, they doubled down on all the world building and the, the myth making of it. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think it's, it's just, it's that level of, of, you know, it fires your imagination, mm-hmm. as I always say. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think, you know, someone like Lucas, who I think is a, you know, is a, 
person who's driven by their creative impulses in the idea of like, what excited me? Like, I have this theory about the 12 year, I, what I call the 12 year old theory, like the thing that is inside you that sort of like locks into you for the rest of your life is what really mm. at 12 yeah. years old, it's, that's it. You're, you're set. Um, and I think that's where he sort of kind of derived so much of his things. Like, what did I love? What I loved, yeah. I loved, you know, those cliffhangers at the end of, you know, the, the, the serial films. Okay. I'll make Indiana Jones and like the world loves Indiana Jones. Like, I, I think you have this kind of thing. If you can just listen to the things that made you happy and then generate things that make you happy as you're generating it, that love carries on people go oh i can identify with that sense of you know joy right well george lucas is a very interesting example because obviously he hit it big with star wars yeah you know and then he hit it big with indiana jones which was another love of his like the 12 year old love of his and you know he's his his big failure uh aside from howard the duck which he produced was hey, was the adventures of young indiana jones do you remember that of course i remember that yes yeah. and you know i i like to call that the first great well the first great betrayal was the ewoks but you know young indiana jones was the second great betrayal because it was so damn boring right i mean that show was so uninvolving and so boring like i never even finished it i didn't even watch the whole series oh no you know? i I might have been a little old for it when it came. When did it come out? Do you remember? I guess it came out in the late 80s, maybe early yeah, 90s. So I think I, yeah, I was already off in college when that came out. So I don't think I really had the, the sort of the interest. I mean, as much as I loved Indiana, Indiana Jones, I don't think I was like, I want to watch. I mean, I wanted to watch Moonlighting. You know what I mean? Like I had moved on to something that was a little more sort of character driven. Yeah, um, but I, I mean, I think... I think you're retconning it there, Alex. I think if it had been more exciting, you would remember it better. You know, oh, no. I think it was just such a bad TV show that you're like, I'll go watch Moonlighting. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, it was just so weird. And then every once in a while, if you're searching somebody on IMDb, you'll see that they have young Indiana Jones in their in their credits. And it's just like, wow. I mean, the show is like even the Ewok adventures are remembered more than that show. You know, because it was so surplus to, called, you know, it like it, what was it? Edutainment. I think that was like, that's where they, they, they coined that term edutainment yes. for that, for the show. And I, and I mean, having spent enough time in corporate America, I really wonder if there was some sort of aspect of there might've been funding that was coming to pay for this thing. You know, like there was something that could have been tied yeah. into it. Hence, its longevity, you know. So ABC, I think, was the was this was the uh, network behind that show, which had a very strong educational sort of, you know, I don't know, production. But, but so wait, I have to look this up and see when it came uh, came out because this is very interesting. Because there's one other thing that we need to bring up: uh, Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, 1992. Okay, oh, wow. so, I was at yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I was fully grown as well, but still, now and there was no moonlighting know, just, anymore. Yeah, so just <laughs> but just four years before that, George Lucas had made Willow. Yeah, and which was his attempt to do the Star Wars, 
And, you know, this movie was considered a flop. But if you, like, my family is really into fantasy. Yeah. And they love Willow. The hard, a, there are, it's a home run in our house. It is a home run, right. And, you know, for the people who loved it, it was a home run. And I have to say, you know, Val Kilmer as Mad Mardigan. I mean, oh. that is one of the most incendiary adventure characters ever put on screen. Yeah, and they're the, just like, yeah, he is the equal of Han Solo in Indiana Jones. He is Jones. Han Solo. He's the anti-hero. He's, oh, he's, he's, he's great. And he puts out so much like dynamic, you know, sort of actions throughout this whole film, through acting, through his physicality, which I, I you know, I uh, listen, I, I will die on the hill of Val Kilmer as one of the great talents in, in, in cinema. And, you know, it's funny, like my wife and her friend ended up watching Real Genius not too long ago. And they were like, oh, let's watch that. I'm like, you guys are going to love it. And they're like, what? And they couldn't have loved it anymore because he's amazing in it. He just yeah, he, yeah. He was, you know? was such a I, fire. Yeah. yeah, he was on fire. And, you know, listen, Joanne, Joanne Whaley, later Joanne oh Whaley God. Kilmer. I wonder why. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's great. Mark Davis is great in it. I mean, it really is. I, you know, when I say great film, it's not the, it's not a great film, but it's just a great entertainment. Oh, it's, so, it's, you know, yeah. And I mean, he, you know, he hooked up with Ron Howard, who was just the right person to make that movie. And so, you know, he could, George Lucas, he had it in him. He always had it in him. And it just, uh, and, and, you know, it's inarguable that uh, the prequels are way better than the, the sequels. I mean, you know, they should have just gone. I wish, I hope someday Disney's got to, just leak his plans for what he was going to do with the last three Star Wars films because they couldn't have been worse right. than what they ended up doing because, you know, which which I just, you know, oh, let's let three completely different directors tell one story. No, it's, it's not Exquisite Corpse, you know? This is, yeah. uh, they just completely effed it up. And so, uh, you know, what can go wrong? And yeah. I don't know how we got off on this whole tangent. Yeah, well, I mean, know, genres, this, franchises. They're but. all they're all they're all tied into into Tolkien. That's the thing. Well, it? that's true. I mean, you Tolkien know? was first, and he yeah. absolutely influenced all of these. And yeah. I mean, and, you know, there's a book. Uh, this author called Lynn Carter read a book called you know Behind the Lord of the Rings. Did you read that? I did not read that one. Oh, okay, I right. memorized. Yeah. Another book I memorized. I hope I have it somewhere. No, it might have burned up in the fire. I have to replace all these books somehow. Um, this book was about the history of fantasy, and um, of which there's a lot in literature, but there really never had been anything quite like The Lord of the Rings. There yeah. never had been something that was quite I mean, there had been a lot of quests, obviously. Quests are, you know, the backbone of, of storytelling. Uh, but there hadn't been anything that just had that level of, I guess, again, world building. And just the idea that there was elves and dwarves and mm -hmm. little people. It was just that that men, elves, dwarves, and little people. Yeah. And then talking trees. You know, he didn't have giants in The yep. Lord of the Rings. But, the you know, a lot of books have giants instead of yeah. one or the other but i was just something about that and so so yeah so what so so what happened when you tried to read the short of shannara um 
I, you know, I, I was really just kind of bored with it. Um, it, it I, I mean, I, I kept just like, I, I, I don't know what I wanted. I wanted something more out of the, out of the tale. It, so that book came out right about the time I started playing Dungeons and Dragons. So I was really, I think I was trying to make it in my head, like a Dungeons and Dragons experience. Mm. And, it, and so I might have just been conflating my experience of being the adventurer versus reading the adventurer and and like and it very felt it felt very sort of schoolyard in in comparison like i i felt i didn't feel like i was reading up like lord of the rings always felt like i was reading up when i was a kid like mm. i'm like oh i'm i'm reading something here that's for grown-ups or something like this is right. this this is there's a lot of information in here, which is, you know, sort of beyond my understanding as a kid. So I'm, I'm like, this is exciting. Um, and I still read it and I go, this is exciting. And I still don't understand it. I'm kidding. Right. Right. Um, uh, but but uh, I mean, I think the thing was just like, I mean, it's like if you go to a restaurant and a great chef cooks you a meal and uh -huh. makes the greatest I mean, sushi of all times. And then you're like, well, I like the salmon sushi, so I guess I'll cook up some salmon. And the salmon is good when it's cooked up, but it's not as good as the sushi, right? Right. Or the ahi tuna. You know, a tuna salad sandwich is not the same as ahi tuna. No, so but you have mine's. A, I make a pretty darn good tuna salad. Oh, well, I, you know, listen, I've had great tuna salad. Don't get me wrong. Uh, <laughs> here in New York, we have some awesome tuna salad. But, but... I mean, you know, I guess with, the, I mean, with, you know, Terry Brooks, I mean, he's a fine writer, yeah. but he just didn't have the world building. You know, I mean, again, let's just try to, to, you know, they did make the movie about Tolkien, you know, his life, which he led a pretty, I mean, it was, it's right for a movie. It had some good melodrama and war right. and all this stuff. So it really was, the movie was a bit dull to my mind, but, um, you know, he, Tolkien was a super genius. I mean, an absolute super genius who, again, invented something like 12 different languages. Right. And uh, that's what he did for fun was invent languages. And if you read some of the, like, if you go on, the, which I've done in the past, you know, when I first read Tolkien, there was no such thing as Wikipedia, <laughs> but now there is. And if you go to Wikipedia and you look at the page for Sindarin, which is mm -hmm. one of the elvish, the two elvish languages that he invented. Like this is longer than the page for, you know, the War of the Roses. Right. I mean, like actual historical things that happen. And it, I didn't even realize that there's been so much research because he left piles and piles of papers. There are, there are, I mean, I discovered, you know, back in the early 2000s, the multiple you know web websites out there that are devoted to quenya or sender and i mean it's just you just you know in their treasure yeah. troves for yeah you know, oh i haven't see i've never i've never i've never gone onto those but i have all the home books you know i have yeah. all the books yeah and i've never ventured on the web but i mean it's just like you know not only did he i you know you might be able to give some detail on this that i can't because but you know not only did he invent a language he invented dialects and regional yeah. influences of the language. You know, this was 
I mean, he was, you know, the guy wrote the dictionary, literally yeah. wrote, you know, he worked on the Oxford Dictionary. And um, <laughs> he understood, you know, how words develop and how they, they change culture and how they come, you know, and, uh, you know, what they mean for societies and everything. And, and you know, what migration and, you know, just to, to segue, I mean, all this, I mean, we could go on. I, I really don't think it's worth too much time to talk about. But all this racist uh, outcry about the Lord of the, you know, from racist, and it's just pure racism because there's so many things about this the show that isn't in the books, but they yeah. just harp on this one thing. So why, why is that? You know, and it's just, sure. you know, oh, you're being political by by, uh, you know, women and people of color existing. I, I just, you know, I've been arguing with some of the trolls on Twitter because it's just so much fun because, you know. <laughs> Like they just can't, you know, I have a pretty good knowledge of this and I have quotes and sources to back me up and, you know, they're just racist. But, uh, you know, Tolkien was keenly aware of of how populations migrate. He wrote all about it. That's, that's yeah. what t- the appendices are all about. Oh, the people of Eorl came of from here and then they settled in the Anduin and then... You know, they got driven out by bandits. And, you know, he completely understood how people migrate and how people, um, you know, how, how well, they, I mean, the elves, there's, intermix. There, there's multiple, there's multiple elves in, in the Lord of the Rings. There's not just yes. one kind of elf because thousands and thousands of years, you know, are ha- happen and they are, they're separated. Hey, we don't want to go back to the, to the, the undying lands. We want to stay here. Oh, okay. Well, we'll see you guys later. And then they have to leave the undying lands and come back. Well, the people they left thousands of years ago, they're different. Time right, is right. To them. And it's like, yes, those islands, man. Like you, you have giant tortoises yeah. because nobody came along and ate this small version of the tortoise. Uh-huh. So they just kept yeah. growing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I feel like, the, these these um, the show would have been more true to Tolkien's uh, actual writings about it if if all the men of the Southlands had brown skin, right? Well, yeah, you know, yeah. it yeah. actually would be more accurate to yeah. what his intentions were, you know, and and uh, were you know the Hardfoot? I mean, they said they had browner skin it's right there. What yeah. do you, well, you know, what do you need? You, you know, they, they should have, they, you could have them all be brown skin and it would be actually be more accurate. But um, I, you know, I mean, Tolkien was as racist as all the men of his generation, unfortunately. I mean, well, he was no saint where this is concerned, but his intentions, you know, he, he, he's on the record as hating racialism, which is what he called it, which was like, you know, Nazi ideas and ideas of apartheid. Right. He was very much against the idea that one race was superior to another. That's yeah. really clear in his writings. Even though he was obsessed with very blonde elf. <laughs> well, you know, why wouldn't you be, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it's, I, I, you know, one, one thing that I say over and over again is like, we are all future cavemen. It's yeah. just the nature of it. And as high-minded as we think we may be at this moment in time, 50 years from now, people are going to look back and go, wait, why Why did they do that? And that's just the nature of things. Like everything kind of moves along. Mores change. Language changes. Everything changes. And yeah. we have to. And sometimes it goes backwards too. Oh, it yeah. Goes backwards. Like, we go into dark ages. Changes. You know, progress. Man. 
it's it's not a, all you know the, the future easy. is not all progress progress is never easy and change is hard yeah. so these are you know and and it doesn't and and you know and change doesn't always mean progress so we right. have so we have to kind of consider all that stuff so um so you don't always just sit around musing about um Tolkien as n neither do I um so like but you do a lot but you're you're really <laughs> engaged in the comic book uh world and um and that was my old business as a as a as a uh penciler and a writer back in the 90s so that was so I have a very long love for the industry and comics were my first love when it came to media um how did like how did you get into it because I mean you've kind of been into it for a while and you know not only as a professional in the editing side on the publishing side but you you know on your own writing about it so what like well where did you love for it start well my love started just you know my whole theory and there is actually a a um academic word for this theory but I don't remember what it is uh but it's kind of a theory that's being develop more and more as more and more fandoms become mainstream but just you know it's not it's not the material that makes the fans it's the fans who find the material you know mm. yeah. and so by whatever whatever genetic makeup i had uh i was just a nerd from birth and uh just really into Obviously, Tolkien was my first great love. That was the first nerdy, that was the first book that I remember, you know, that wasn't, well, I read a lot of kids, but I loved Oz. I might have read Oz before that, but, you know, I loved fantasy. I was really into fantasy. And I was, um, I was really into, well, this world building. I was into things because of my love of Tolkien. I was really into things that were really complicated and had this, you know, lore that you could study. And, but I was always into comics as well. You know, I'm old enough that I grew up when uh, the kids' comics were by Carl Barks and, you know, <laughs> John Stanley, Little Lulu. I mean, these are just like some of the greatest comics of sure. all time and perfect reading. You know, my family was very pro-comic. They were pro-reading. They were pro-art. My mother was a cartoonist. Uh, she's a, you know, fine artist to this day. She just makes art all day. That's just what she does. So I was surrounded by artists. My uncle, who's Lord of the Rings books I had inherited, was also an artist. He painted and so I was surrounded by a lot of our artistic intentions uh, around me. And um, I do remember exactly how this happened was that um, there was a magazine in the house that my grandmother had that was um, some kind of teacher's magazine because I was homeschooled. So my grandmother was my teacher. So she's described is actually a whole other podcast, but, um she subscribed to this magazine for teachers and of course i was reading because i just read yeah, you know i read modern maturity whatever came you know i was such a reader i'd read anything that came in the house and um we didn't have the internet so i just read all day and uh there was an interview with stan lee and he, it was him trying to you know talking about how comics were actually educational how marvel comics were taught at universities and you know look stan lee this is something i was actually talking with a friend about a friend who was in the comics industry back in the 90s and uh that you know stan lee was very famous in the 60s and 70s and 70s you know? yeah. 
And he's probably less famous in the 80s, but then he had the big comeback and became mm -hmm. incredibly famous. But he was quite well known. You know, you could find, you know, he was on TV. He was on talk shows. He was, you know, yeah. in magazines. He was always being interviewed, you know, and he was a shameless self-promoter. So, I mean, he was Great. really good at it. Yeah. So, so this article was just talking about the Marvel comics and saying that they were, you know, educational. And, you know, on that fateful day, uh, there were, it was ShopRite. And ShopRite did have the racks of comics in it. Uh, you know, horribly riffled through, mutilated. And I did just said, you know, hey, can you buy these comics? For okay. Me? And uh, it was Marvel. I did get the Marvel comics. There was uh, an issue of Fantastic Four and an issue of Spider-Man. And, um, and what got me was that they had footnotes, right? Ah, okay, sure. Editorial notes. Editorial, that way they don't do anymore because God forbid that somebody explains something you don't know. Sure. But, you know, they were very, very, very beginner friendly. Sure. And they had the recap yep. panel. You know, they had the recap paragraph in every issue that said, you know, born of the atom, um, you know, spurned by humankind. The X-Men <laughs> are gathered, you know. And right. So it, gave, so it gave you enough to go on. And the footnotes immediately suggested that there was this whole rich tapestry of stories that I had to get up to speed on. And I mean, that was it. I was, I was hooked. I was hooked uh, by those. There were also very, I think one of the, I think the first Fantastic Four issue I read by good fortune was, I think it might be 176. That was where the impossible man comes back and okay. goes to the Marvel bullpen. So not only, you know, luckily yeah. had this really cool book, I think it was George Perez might have even drawn it, uh, that had this another level of, of, you know, the real people in it. It had all these like, you know, multi, multiverse, versal elements to it. So right. it just had, you know, I just happened to come in at this, this right time that, that it really hooked me with how much, um, how much you know depth and and what a universe this was because i'll tell you you know of course i went back and i got some dc comics mm -hmm. and i hated them i hated them <laughs> i legion of superheroes i had no idea what was going on bored yeah. as hell bored to shit and then you know the justice league at that time was the infamous was it dick mclaughlin i forget the name of the artist who was drawing it in the 70s but he was just so boring i mean it's just he's known as one of the most boring it was so bad i mean i say he's a bad artist it was just not interesting to me at that time and i never got into dc i i picked up one issue of all of them and was immediately bored i i i picked up i've told this story many many times also but i picked up an issue of the jsa that was drawn by Wally Wood and it had Power Girl with these gigantic, you know, breasts. And I was really offended by it. I was just like, oh, this is not for me. It's yeah. very clearly. And I mean, not not like, oh, me saying this is not for me. I'm like, this is not meant for me. I am yeah. not allowed. Like, right, this right, is right. not something that they want me to read. They do. People who made this comic book don't want me to read it. It's not meant for me. So I was horribly unattracted to all that DC stuff. And, you know, at the same time, I picked up like issue 102 of the X-Men. That I will never forget. Chris Claremont, yeah. Dave Cockrum. And 
uh, just all these amazing characters, Storm and, you know, Jean and Micro. I mean, it was just uh, and immediately. And that was like the second half of a story, I think. You know, right. I think it was the second half. So it came right in the middle of the story. And I was, didn't matter. I was immediately, no, it's like, completely... It's like the James Bond opening. I mean, like you're, you're already in the middle of the action and you get to see the thing come to a conclusion. So, you know, and it's only incentive to say like, well, let me go grab the issue before the th two issues before, because this is really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know I, what I mean? You can't, you can't just, just I want to just do, you know, you can't rewrite whatever is your first time, but uh, you know, I would be, I would love to know what are the things, well, I kind of have some idea of what are the things that, you know, but I mean, it was also a time period where there was all these really crazy comics like Howard the Duck and, um, you know, the Defenders. That was my other favorite. Yeah, and sure. you know, Steve Gerber was one of the top writers. So there was just, a, you know, Master of Kung Fu and Kill Raven and, mm -hmm. you know, Black Panther, uh, yeah. Jungle Action, all this really great, rich stuff that's that stood the test of time to some degree. So anyway, I'm sorry I cut you off. Well, no, I, it's, no, it's, no, when you say that, it's interesting because like, I mean, the 70s comics certainly at, at, on the Marvel side had a very grindhouse kind of vibe to them, you know, like they were just mm -hmm. kind of like trying some really like, hey, like Bruce Lee's really popular. So let's come up with a character like that, you know, and they did that. But that didn't really solidify him as an interesting character. But then they made him a spy. And then they sent him mm -hmm. on, like, he started doing things. And now it's like, oh, okay, he's, like, tied into doing stuff. And, you know, Ghost Rider or Hellraiser, like, they all, or Hellblazer. They had all these interesting characters who were just kind of, like, doing all these interesting things at the time, which, you know, they're of the time. But, like, but now they're, like, a rich sort of, like, you know, bed for all this new fertility mm -hmm. to be kind of growing. Right. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, Master Kung Fu obviously was really, really racist. And well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say it's racist. I'm going to say it was it was indifferent to understanding, you know, and it's it was and, of the times. It yeah, was it was of the, the times. Time. So there's no intention of yeah. racism. It was just yeah. like naive to say, OK, well, hey, we're going to do this. And that's what it was. Yeah. Yes. You know? And, uh, you know, I'm really glad that it's been redeemed. And, uh, and, you know, some of the really good parts of it have, have kind of stuck around in the, the modern version of it. And it's become something that, um, you know, Chinese American people can watch and, and really enjoy. So yeah. I, I think it's wonderful that it's, that it's been redeemed in that way. But, you know, back in the day, I mean, Paul Gulacy's artwork, that's what got me into it. I mean, oh, it was no, just such a great storyteller. No, no. All the bizarre characters. I mean, there was so much into it that, yeah. that you know just just had me hooked so. i mean mike zek sort of made his name doing that book yeah. with gene day and it was just yeah it was, it was amazing so it was a really cool it was a very cool time sure when you're 10 or 11 years old maybe you're not catching all the things that are wrong right. with it. but you know i don't think the people who were making it were catching the things that were wrong with it at the time and if they yeah could they wouldn't have done it they would they no. were like, well, wait a minute let's 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 solve this a little bit in a better fashion yeah well again uh times change quite mm -hmm. a bit and uh you know i mean it's it's amazing that we have this this insane backlash now you know and it's always they have all these reasons but uh for not liking colorblind casting or things that are even more you know that are canon uh, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, I, it's, 
you know, they were, they were, they, you know, there's this entire, I, I, again, I hate to talk about that, but just, you know, I just astounds me. Like the, this whole, you know, comics are dying crowd can't stand the She-Hulk TV show because there's a scene where they twerk. And it's like, did you read the original comics? It that, was full oh, of campy. It was so um, campy. I mean, it, it was, was it was so campy. It was a blast. It was a blast for all that, for all those reasons. And it, it survived because of those reasons. It, like, yeah. And I mean, it, and I mean, it was just a whole... Hmm. Comics are so political now. I well, mean, Howard the Duck ran for president. Okay? Yeah. You know, I mean, there was... I mean, you can't even name, use some of the things that, that Marvel did in the 70s. You know? But, I, I mean, Roxxon. What do you think Roxxon and AMR? Jesus Christ. Anyway. Yeah, it's... It, it's I mean, we... I, I mean, I, you know, like I said, change is hard and people have a hard mm. time with it. Um, you know, it's really strange when you're, you're talking about colorblind casting. My, the first, what I think is for me was really a, a, an effective way of doing it. Of course, unfortunately, the reference now is not, not a, not a openly welcome reference, but with on Louis C.K.'s show, he just cast the best actor for the character from season to season. And if the same person wasn't available, he just hired a new person. So <laughs> his wife is black. Okay. Yeah. But his kids weren't. And the kids were different. Like it just, it didn't matter to him because he's like, listen, it doesn't matter. What matters is I'm the story I'm telling gets done by the best people doing it. And I'm like, yeah. yes, let's just look at the world in that fashion. I don't care. I don't, I really don't care. I just want a good thing being told to me whether it's a visual thing or on paper just tell me a good thing i like that yeah yeah, um, yeah. what did you so like i mean so for me like you know reading comics in the 70s set that template locked it in at 12 and I, one of my sisters you know to this day will recount you know recount the story of like you know well, what do you want to do when you grow up and i'm like i want to draw comic books you know like there's some sort of like i want to be a magician you know i mean it's a ridiculous mm -hmm. thing to say um, did they have some, did they have this sort of like longevity impact on you? Like saying, Oh, I want to be involved with comic books. Or did you just say that this is an entertainment form that I, I, I dig along with reading in books and in movies or whatever? Well, I always wanted to be a writer. I mean, that was all I ever wanted. Well, to if be. you read so and, much, yes. Yeah, obviously. And, you know, I was writing stories when I was, you know, eight, nine, 10. I mean, I learned how to type. I would type out my little stories. And um, I just came about really by accident. Like I, you know, there was all these great fanzines. So after you read the comics, there was these ads in them mm -hmm. for the comic conventions. And yep. so I went to the comic conventions. That's how I got. And then I went to the, and then also the ads for the buyer's guide. And so then so uh, I went to the shows back in New York and the, the you know, now at, at the, the creation uh, shows. At the Roosevelt yeah. Hotel. The Roosevelt Hotel now. Yeah. Long yep. gone, you know, yep. I guess it was the Penn Plaza. Now it's, you know, they're tearing it down, which really, you know, tear out a little bit of my heart as well. Yeah. And, but, you know, you then I picked up the other fanzines, you know, like the Comics Journal. And, you know, there were other fanzines, like, like, I, I, I mean, it's not even the road not taken. I mean, I tried that road and I just didn't want to go down it because I did pick up like Comics Reader and Rock, RBCC. I mean, there was a very robust slate of, print comics fanzines back then and uh the ones that i liked was the comics journal that was the yeah. one that just again spoke to me and i just wrote a review of uh of uh chris claremont comic marada the she-wolf and i just sent it in 
I typed it up and I sent it in and uh, just, I'm like, okay, you know, they say they want contributions and they accepted it. They, there was a, the editor at the time was a guy named Dwight Decker. So he pulled it out of the slush pile and ran it. <laughs> and that was my first published work. I'd never submitted anything anywhere. You know, I was like a, uh, you know, a kid, I was still a kid. Yeah. Uh, I think I was 19. And, um, you know, then I wrote more. I just kept writing. And yeah. I mean, there wasn't very many girls who were doing it. So it was pretty easy to stand out. I always say that. And uh, then the buyer's guide, they invited me to write for them. You know, I wrote for Amazing Heroes. And the Amazing Heroes was this kind of companion fanzine that was really the precursor to Wizard. And it did oh, cover yeah. like superhero stuff. And But it was the precursor to everything because they uh, twice a year, they would do something called the Amazing Heroes Preview Special where they would just call up everybody who made comics and say, what are you doing for the next six months? Right. Like, this idea is so unbelievable now that you did this. And of course, I picked all the ones that I loved. So I would call up Will Eisner and Howard Chaikin and the Hernandez brothers. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Jesus, who else did I? I mean, it's ridiculous who I talk to. And just blab. And, you know, Dave Sim. I mean, sometimes yep. we'd end up blabbing for hours, you know. And I got to know everybody. I guess everybody got to know me. And, uh, you, didn't, you know, I was educating myself and learning and about, but self-education. I was completely self-taught in all of this. I never went to school. I never went to college. And um, I moved to Los Angeles. I had been living in New Jersey, in Maine, and then I moved to Los Angeles. And then I became much more involved in the actual physical scene. You know, mm -hmm. meeting human beings and talking to them and, you sure. know, hanging out at the comic shop. Although there was a comic store in Somerville, New Jersey, where I grew up. It has actually one of the oldest comic shops. Wow. Uh, is, yeah, it's called Quality Comics. And so I, you know, so I, I had that. And they, one of their co-owners was this woman who wrote for the comics journal. So it really was this, who I, and I never met her. That's the funny thing. I lived in this town, grew up in this town. And I never met the woman who owned the comic shop. So, um, uh, you know, so I, I, again, there was a lot of pieces that fell into place, but when I moved into LA, I started hanging out at the golden apple, which is okay. very, another very legendary comic shop. So owned by Bill Leibowitz and very influential. I mean, he was really one of the first comics retailers who kind of had a vision of the comic shop as a pop culture store. So, yeah. uh, so we really grokked that. And then he, uh you know i think he just took a shine to me you know i think a lot of people took a shine to me because i was you know pretty young still and uh pretty fiery about my comics opinions <laughs> and great. pretty you know pretty um pretty determined to have my say and as you had to be you know and i didn't take I wasn't intimidated at all by the really overt sexism. I guess I just didn't know any better. I think I just, I, I just didn't, I just didn't know any better. I didn't know that I was supposed to be afraid of this stuff or, you know, intimidated or, or feel. Annoyed um, or, or, or upset or whatever the thing that, yeah. Well, I did get annoyed and upset because it, it bothered me when people said stupid okay. shit, but I wasn't intimidated. Turd. I wasn't intimidated by it. You know, I just never, uh, or I never felt that I didn't belong. You know, I went to one comic shop when I lived in Maine. There was only two comic shops there. And I went to one of them and I, you know, I had that classic experience of 
uh, not feeling welcome. And like the the guys, it was a real dungeon, and the people who were there didn't even look up or say anything to me. I think they were playing D and D, which I also played, but they they just were really rude to me. And I was like, I'm never going back there, you know. And then there was a comic shop in in Portland, which um, is the same spot as now Casablanca Comics, um, which is a great, great, great comic shop. And you know, they were. Uh, friendly to me but uh you know I was super lucky that uh, you know I went to quality comics and then the golden apple and I was um, like family I was like family to the to the Leibowitzes I mean they were my second family you know Sharon and Bill and their kids Ryan and Damon I'm still doing stuff with with them and um you know and then Bill gave me these insane opportunities it was like oh we have Frank Miller and Bill Sienkiewicz coming in to you know, talk about Electra Assassin, Heidi, do you want to interview them? And uh, I'm like, okay, yeah. you know, and there's, you know, this photo that I don't know where, I don't know if I, this is my photo. I think it might be my photo that I took. And I, I don't know where it came from. There was this photo of me and, um, you know, Frank and Bill. And there's also Michael Gilmore. So he didn't send me out solo, you know, mm-hmm. he had an actual journalist coming along with me but um yeah i just got all these really great and you know that's i would uh you know like neil gaiman was signing like the golden apple had everybody signed you i would just go to all the signings and i just sure. met everybody and you know it was great then you'd hang out afterwards sometimes so it was really just this awesome awesome scene and um you know i kept up my fanzine writing and i guess i kind of got it into my head that I would like to work in comics and uh, Disney comics was located in LA at this time. Okay. And, right. Right. So they were the only sh- show in town because, you know, Marvel and DC were still back in New York. Uh, and I, you know, I think I interviewed for a job there, but I, I didn't want to move or something. And I, I did, I, I heard that Marv Wolfman was looking for an assistant and for this Disney Adventures magazine. And I was like, I need to get this job. I really need to get this. I don't know. I just, again, I had it in my head that I was going to get this job. And, uh, you know, Marv still remembers the story. But, like, you know, I went in for an interview. I mean, I knew Marv. Mm. And, uh, again, I ran into him at a party. And he mentioned he was looking for an assistant and that I should send in my resume. Now, that would never happen now. you got to go through HR. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, listen, so, the, the human network was everything right so i super super lucked out with my timing there but uh you know i went in for for an interview i was only a freelance position so that's probably one of the reasons why i was able to get in without hr and uh he sent me um like uh some plot sent me a plot for a rescue rangers story and said you know let me know what you think of this plot because that was the job you would get all these pitches and you'd pick out the best story for the rescue rangers and tailspin and ducktails and everything and uh you know i read it and i was like this story sucks so i wrote that and i said you know this story there's really nothing happens and you know I, it's just very weak motivation you know gadget wouldn't do that i, I didn't even know rescue rangers that i had yeah. I, maybe I, I i must have had to watch it or something or else i wouldn't you know i mean i wasn't that that arrogant and then marv says i was the only person who was critical of this plot like yeah. all the other applicants were like yeah hey, this is great this is yeah. great yeah. So that's why I got hired. And the rest is history. Yeah. 
yeah i mean uh you know it, it is interesting how we are you know how how who we are sort of navigates who we you know where we go in this in these worlds that we sort of work our way through so you know being the person yeah because i mean it's so easy to just go like well no this is great i loved it because you think you're answering the question that somebody want like it's so, so funny you answering it the way you think that they want to hear versus answering the question that they ask you what do you well, think? right but you know there's also you know the other way which i feel the internet has fostered which is like complete negativity and complete like this sucks and i don't like it i don't like it so it sucks. you know it's so interesting you say this so i went so i went to our college and in new york city and will eisner was my teacher and but what was really fascinating to me was what i recognized by the time we were finishing was this incredible sort of cloud of negativity because there's this thing about like art school, like, you know, like, well, everything sucks and, you know, and da, 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 you know, I mean, like, this is why bands like, you know, The Cure are popular in art school. Mm -hmm. Did you um, go to, what art school did you go to? I went to school of visual arts. Okay, SVA. Well, yeah, uh, art school confidential. I mean, yeah. SVA, legendary. But anyway, continue. Yeah. yeah so, it, and I remember getting to this point right after school and saying, you know what? I can't, I can't, I can't do that anymore. Like I can't be like, everything can't suck. I just need to be, I just need to, you know, say what I like and, and, and like the things I like, not even talk about the stuff that I don't like because it's not an interest anymore. You know, who cares? So that was kind of an important kind of like moment. And yeah, listen, the, it, the, the, I mean, listen, the internet of the nineties bothered me with that negativity. You know, I would yeah. sit there and I would argue on forums because people were like this sucks or that sucks. And, and I was like, and you know, and it drew, it drove me crazy. Cause I'm like, I'm like, you're not making these things. You're not putting yourself out there. Right. And I just want to throw in there that that cartoon, you know, of like, I can't sleep. Somebody on the internet is wrong. I mean, that goes back to like 2000. <laughs> I mean, that's an old yeah. cartoon. That is not from social media. Yeah. It goes all the way back. Yeah. No, you're, t you're right. And I, and it's a very, it's very much a thing. And like, yeah, that's where I understood, like, you know, you learn about flaming and all this stuff. I'm like, oh, okay, like, this is a thing. Like, I didn't, I wasn't in it enough to know, like, the lingo. But but that negativity, you know, it's tough, man. Like, you know, we're handed these little these little television stations in our pockets, and we can we can say and do what we want, right? Isn't that the rule? Like, uh -huh. and it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough because our human maturity doesn't keep up with our technological advancements so we're uh, still well but uh, but you know what i mean that lesson was learned in the 90s on on usenet you yeah. know i mean it's like when people talk about flame wars and everything that goes on now it's like we already knew this you yeah, know we already had ways yeah. to deal with that's where all these phrases like flame war and trolling yeah. and all of these we already had developed the the vocabulary lexicon. the lexicon and had experience of it and it was obvious that the only places that you could go were ones that were heavily moderated and right. you know i was on you know my mother was on the internet before me i mean she's like the tech and art leader in my family yeah, my dad was too. And, yeah. yeah right okay and but she was you know on CompuServe, which was you know where the early comics internet uh, that and and genie and oh there was a third one that i never was on prodigy and um you know like it was moderated 
And yeah. let me tell you, man, there was like the secret pros place on Comedy Server. But if you thank God it's gone, because the flame wars there between pros were unbelievable. They make they make Twitter honestly look tame. Yeah. Because they would go on for days and people would take I mean, if you saw the names that were arguing, yeah. you'd be shocked, you know. I, I, about- I remember I remember the scuttlebutt of that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. But I mean it's just you know, like anytime I see you know, the the, the people who run Twitter and Facebook saying like, oh, well, all, all opinions should be valid. It's like, you know, we try that. And when you try that, that's what we have now. Yeah. You know, open lies yeah. and disinformation, trolling, racism, sexism, it's transphobia. It's, it's, it's anonymity. Like, yeah, it's, and it's, anonymity. It's, it's, but it's not, it's not yeah. like, it's not, it's not a new discovery. It's already known. It's, it's just around, how. It's been around forever. You know, okay, letters were yeah. written in with an with a with pseudonyms to tell all these tell all letters hundreds of years ago. This is the nature of you know, like anonymity provides that 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 space where someone can behave in a fashion that is outside of what they would normally do, and that's a real it's 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 unfortunate, um, but it's uh, and it's unfortunately human, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, there's been a lot of good. That's obviously come out of social media. I mean, I don't mean to say that, but you know, it's it's like in the extremes become more and more. Uh, you know, like the, the it yeah. starts out here. Now the the extremes are farther and farther apart. Now they're farther and farther apart. And you know, it's just it's, it's crazy. cool. Like man, it's cool if you don't agree with me, and I'm I'm cool with your opinion. That's fine in life. You like, but just... you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, what the, the one of the. What is the, the the greatest part of working at Disney with Marv was the other people around us was, uh, you know, Len Wein, Lee, this guy named Lee Nordling, who was like a really great story editor. Uh, Floyd Norman, the legendary Disney animator, which is one of the smartest, and most wisest people I've ever met in my life. Um, you know, and other people of that ilk. And then Marv's office was like this you know, Monday morning coffee clash where everybody would come in and talk about whatever movies they'd seen over the weekend. And, I, you know, like I would have my opinions, but this was a pretty detailed analysis. This was yeah. like real, like, like What's a story editing. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was a masterclass. It was absolutely a masterclass. So I learned so much about storytelling and also just why Disney movies stand the test of time you know just to bring this all full circle because I, I think our time is, we're gonna have we're gonna have to close so not to bring a full circle like one of the things that as rings of power goes along annoys me is that i can see that they didn't they didn't um they didn't really hash it out okay and yeah. I've, I've told this story before in you know other interviews or in writings or whatever but uh you know floyd was working for pixar he was working on toy story 2 and I would, I had moved back to New York, but I was in LA. And this is again, these were the days, like I just walked straight into the Walt Disney Animation Building. And <laughs> Floyd is like, oh, yeah, here's, you know, we're doing dinosaurs, here's Tarzan. And like, we literally, you know, he, oh, do, hey, you want to see Mike Mignola's concept art for Atlantis? Right. Like, yeah. yeah. You know, so literally, he just walks me through and it shows me all this, this stuff. And, you know, I mean, what, what am I going to do with it? You know, I'll tell my friends. That's right. It. There was no, yeah, there no, wasn't enough of it. Totally. Yeah. It was a but anyway, time. Yeah, but anyway, so I went to Floyd's office and, you know, we were just hanging out. We went to lunch, we go back, we're hanging out. 
and uh, you know, he's got it's just like the, the the movies. He's got all the index cards on the wall, and he's like, you know, trying to work on the scene where the toys are trying to cross the street, and uh, I think it's now I can't remember. It is in the movie, like uh, like Buzz has a crisis of confidence. Now, why does he have this crisis of confidence in crossing the street? And, you know, in Toy Story 2, there was, there was this whole scene where they need to cross the street. That's very dangerous for them. Right. And they do get across the street. But, like, it was that level of detail. Like, he had to have, like, you know, again, Floyd Norman is a legend. He has a documentary about him. You know, he's a legend. He's just yeah. one of the most legendary animation minds of all times. And here he is suspending the day, trying to come up with one tiny story point. Well, that's, I mean, that, and I'm sure Disney's is, is, you know, the history of Disney is replete with that. But that to me, the, the way the story is built in the Pixar model is a revolution. They yeah. really under they they it's it, it is no longer the responsibility of one brilliant person to come up with a story and here we go this is the brilliant person's story it was a this is a conglomeration of the best minds that they can get together and mm -hmm. tell the story to and see and they go i love this what if we just had him grab a whatever and now he has this thing and then he could use that later and people go like this opens up a whole new thing. And like, it's this ability to Socratically yeah. discuss a story and see all these elements. It's because it's not the writer's room. It's not sitting in a writer's yeah. room where it's how clever can I be and make everyone laugh it, in. And then everyone goes, runs off and writes their own script. This is, this is everybody coming together to throw ideas out to the people or person writing the script who says, okay, now I can take all this beautiful, you know, concept that has been stacked up and now what do I do with it? And now you can kind of play it in and put the thing. And that's why these, that's why Pixar movies are really our modern fairy tales. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was, you know, uh, the, 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 listen, I mean, like, right. But I, they are absolutely, but I mean, I will say like, you know, having conversations with some of the people behind, um, you know, Aladdin. I was working at Disney when Aladdin came out mm -hmm. with Aladdin, and uh, you know, that period which went from the highest highs of Beauty, you know, Little yeah. Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and then you know, ended up in Atlantis. You know, it just petered out, but um, and it was still good, but it did go down into this dark ages as Pixar ascended, yeah. right? But I mean, I got to talk to some of the Pixar people too, and I, I will say, I think that level of detail have storytelling detail character detail was very much part of the whole disney process during yeah. this period and it's why these movies really last and last and last and last and is because uh, you know and you see I, I mean i don't want to put down the fan the rise of fan fiction you know and and uh, archive of our own and all that you know like now fans think about these things a lot too yeah. And they they analyze the characters, and you know I think it's because they were created with so much, uh, you know, depth and, and care that and care that yeah. they have, you know, that they're 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 just really rich topsoil they feel, for they these stories feel. to grow. 
they feel real. And I think, and I, and, you know, tying it back to, you know, Tolkien or, you know, Harry Potter, we read these stories and these characters are so human, whether they're humans or not. Um, yeah. And we all identify with these traits and these characteristics that we want these characters to have more. We want to do more with them. So it's an understandable thing. And I mean, it's, it's, you know, and it's why people such as myself go, Oh, I want to get into comic books because I love Peter Parker and I love Spider-Man and I want to do something with that. Or I, you go, I want to write about this medium that is so important to me. That is so in, it is really an engaging embracing medium um, by and large. And it's, there's these, you know, you can't have a better preacher for it than Neil Gaiman. I mean, this guy is the best evangelist for comics in the history of comics. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, listen, it's a great, it's a great thing. Um, I don't know. I, 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 you know, shoot, I can talk about this all the time. I do talk about it all the time. So do you. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So we do. It's what uh, we do. Yeah. So what, like, like I actually was read two or three articles before we actually started talking today. So like, so that's, so your jam is on comicsbeat.com, right? Mm -hmm. That's where everybody can yeah. catch what you're doing all the time. That yeah, and this is a, yeah, yeah. So website. Yeah. Well, I, I do, I sound off on Twitter, but yes, comicsbeat.com has been running for about 18, 17, 18 years now. And it is, uh, you know, I have other contributors on there, but I call it the website of comics culture. I've always been just fascinated by what it is about these that, you know, why do these stories work so well? Who are the people behind them? And, mm -hmm. You know, what are the business forces that make it work? And I mostly write a lot of business stories, which I, I, I don't know how that happened. Like now I basically do business analysis, the comics industry. Uh, because I guess just doing reviews and stuff became a little too fraught for me, just, you know, mm -hmm. given my, I always say, don't write something you wouldn't say to a person's face and right. that and covers maybe, it all. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I write a lot of business, but you know, we cover, uh, you know, the business side of things we do have, I have a really great staff of amazing, amazing writers and, uh, they're becoming kind of like, you know, uh, very I'm glad that some of them are getting, you know, respected and, and getting known and getting their voices out there. Um, and, you know, some of them like are moving on to work in the industry, which excites the hell out of me when they do that. So, um, uh, yeah, you know, uh, just, yeah, I, I always say I was just to the manner born. I was never going to escape comics and um, <laughs> just, it's just the way it worked out. And it's okay. That's, you know, where I went. It's been so, pretty good so far. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it, listen, I, 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 don't really work in comics that much and you know but it is my first love you know and i i really do you know i have i have great care for it and i enjoy the hell out of nearly everybody in it on every level um there are just so many fun and impassioned people you know in this industry so there's just and, and listen nothing's better than going to convention with the people who love the same thing you do yeah because nobody stays in it for the money no. <laughs> they all stay in it because they no. love it and that does the money <laughs> yeah and that's why you have people who are just really passionate love what they do and totally. uh, it's good to be around that yeah good influence well, Heidi, I really appreciate you taking the time. This, I mean, this has been fun. I mean, this is, you know, I'll, listen, I'd be happy to sit and talk about Tolkien the whole time. 
I know we could. I think I got to start a Tolkien podcast. To be honest, I think we got to. We, me and my entertainment editor Therese is also a big Tolkien nerd. So we've been talking about doing it for a year. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I guess the time is now. We only have uh, five more weeks, so we better hop on it. The time is nigh, as they would say, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. No. It's. It, it, listen. It's. It's my. It's one of my favorite subjects, um, near and dear to my heart. And uh, but I really, I'm glad that we actually got the job. Yeah. Me too. This is great. This is the first yeah. person I've really talked to a lot about it. So. Yeah. No. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. Just and started. I'm. I'm. I'll, I'll be very curious watching episode three because it's. You know. You know. Listen, it's the landing. We have to wait for the landing. Everything comes down to the landing. How do you finish this whole thing? And that's yeah. where we... Well, it's really beautiful. I'll say this. It's really beautiful. Oh, yeah. But lower, lower your expectations think, as far as I the story your goes. Line, your line was, you see every single dollar spent on the screen in this show. Mm -hmm. And you're right. Yeah. You really yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I have another delivery coming. So okay. I got to... No, no, no. we, we will wrap this up. So thanks a lot. And um, stay in touch. And we'll uh, see everyone yeah. next week. All right. Thanks Thank you.